So uh, this this year will be my uh, 49th Christmas. Um, some of you have uh, seen many more than that. Some of you are not quite there yet. But as I've said before, I'm pretty confident I've been to a Christmas service in every single one of those years. I can't vouch for when I was a baby in arms, but I'm, I'm sure that was the case, uh, bearing in mind what I know of my parents. And therefore, I'm sure that I've heard the Christmas story many, many times and in many, many ways. And in one sense, that is a, a really good thing and a helpful thing because as you hear that story explained over the years and down through time, you hear, um, you hear the, the different angles that people bring to the story. The same truth being explained from different experiences and in different ways and at different times. And hopefully that builds up in us a very sort of complete picture, doesn't it? But I wonder whether there is that, that slight danger that we start to take things for granted and we perhaps miss out on the enormity of some of the things that are going on in these verses which seem very familiar to us. You know, not another sermon about the shepherds and the angels. But why not? Why shouldn't there be another sermon about the shepherds and the angels? We're not going there today. Um, but why shouldn't there be? Just put yourself in the position of those shepherds. What is it that they experienced on that, that evening? What does the heavenly host look like as they proclaim glory to God in the highest? So I think there is a, a temptation there for all of us. And I'd like us not to fall into that temptation uh, if we can avoid it. And there's at least three reasons, probably four. Um, the first thing, the Christmas story is worthy, as worthy of telling as it ever has been. It's as worthy of telling today as it ever has been. And it has lost none of its glory. It's lost none of its power or its force It's lost none of its ability as part of God's word, as part of the good news to transform people's lives. It's not changed at all. Second thing, we're living in what perhaps people call a post-Christian culture. And I think the, the way to explain that is if we thought that our nation generally adhere to a sort of a Christian ethos. I'm not entirely sure whether that's ever been the case fully, but if we think that, certainly we see that being eroded and melting away and the things of God being completely distanced from all aspects of our our culture. We call it a a post-Christian culture. But what are we what, what, what are we saying? Well, there are generations of people growing up today who have never actually heard the Christmas story for the first time, let alone the 49th time. So for Christmas Unwrapped this year in the church, year two children from most of the schools in the area coming or being taken to the, the message of Christmas would have been something perhaps they heard for the first time. So we need to think about that. This message that doesn't change is always relevant, isn't it? There's whole generations where hardly anyone has ever heard 
the Christmas story and the truth of it. And the third thing is this, that the, the Christmas story to an unbeliever is an entirely different thing from the Christmas story to someone who believes. For me, there were many times when I may as well have been a brick wall as that message was spoken from the front or wherever I heard it. Speaking that message, I'm sure it's been treated as me speaking to a brick wall to many people who don't believe. But as soon as that moment comes when God uses in his timing that message to open someone's heart to Jesus, that message changes, doesn't it? Suddenly becomes, wow, Jesus came for me. What a wonderful thing. There came a time when those wonderful events meant so much more than just a festive part of the year that we go through each, each year. So God's word is so rich that time after time, when we return to familiar passages, we find the most wonderful truths that haven't changed. And they're able to truly transform our lives. And that's what I pray today. That's what I pray each time that we look at the Christmas story, but each time the word is preached, that God will take that word, and the Holy Spirit will speak into people's hearts. Well, why am I saying that this morning? I'm not, I'm not apologising for what I'm going to say at, at all. But also, I think it's important that we don't just stick to the parts of the Christmas story that we like. So maybe we do have comfort in seeing the angels and the shepherds, the wise men. And yes, we'll, we'll, we'll cover both of those to some extent today. But actually, there are details that surround the Christmas story that as you go through your, your journey of faith, as you discover more about the Jesus that you're following, the God who has saved you, as you read his word, you make those connections from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the prophets and the kings uh, to Jesus, and then on into the New Testament as that pours out. And it's such an important thing, because that helps us to see more clearly what it is that's happened to us if we're trusting in Jesus. It helps us to follow so much more uh, faithfully as we understand what it is that God now wants us to do if we've come to Jesus. Now, we read, uh, Ray, read, thank you, Ray, uh, a substantial chunk of Luke chapter 1. It is a very long chapter, and ideally I would have read all of it, but um, for, for, for time's sake we read um, a, a, a suitable section of it. And I want us to think about some of these details that underpin the Christmas story and actually are major themes that come out in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, there are a few characters that we came across in the, in the text, and the first character I want to think about is a king. It's a king. Which king am I thinking about? Well, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary in Luke chapter 1, and he tells her what is about to happen. The angel Gabriel is actually quite busy in, in Luke chapter 1. It's not just Mary, but it's Mary that I'm thinking of just now. Luke chapter 1 and verse 27 says this, A virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, 
of the house of David. And then in uh, verses 32 and 33, this is what is said about this baby that is going to be born to this, this young virgin Mary. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God shall give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. We're going to come on to who that's talking about but the person that's referenced there is this chap David, King David. Who is King David? Well, King David is probably Israel's greatest king. He is the king who is most mentioned in connection with Jesus. What is it about David that we're supposed to, uh, supposed to latch on to here? Well, wasn't it David who was the king whose heart was after God's own heart? David was the, the great king who loved his God. And he's the one who received God's promise, didn't he? God promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16 that David's kingdom, the kingdom that God was giving to David, would be established forever. Under David's reign and Solomon after him, his son, the kingdom of Israel started to have peace and to have rest from its enemies. Plans were made for a a temple to be built, and all of the things that came into Solomon's reign, the good things about being part of God's people in the Old Testament, that golden age was about to start. But actually, it wasn't perfect, was it? It wasn't perfect. And that gives us a, a problem, doesn't it? David's throne had been empty for hundreds of years by the time we get into the Christmas story. Hundreds of years. We're sort of confronted with a a reality that God's promise that David's kingdom would last forever, it already looks as though it isn't being fulfilled. There's no one on the throne. It's like a constant nagging thing. After David, after Solomon didn't take long at all for the wheels to fall off and the, if you like, the king project seemed to fail spectacularly because in the end there was the exile and then no further king at all on the throne. Is God keeping his promises? This kingdom that we're talking about looks like an earthly one that's passed away and it's, it's been forgotten about. And how is that going to change? What is it about this promise which the angel makes to Mary which will get that kingdom back on track? Well, we come back to that. That's the king, King David. Next, I want to think about a priest. And that priest is a guy called Zechariah. We meet him quite a lot in Luke chapter 1. What do we know about him? Well, actually, a reasonable amount. There's quite a lot to learn about him in this chapter. He's married to a lady called Elizabeth. Um, It was a great blessing for a priest to marry a wife from the daughters of Aaron, as it says in verse 5. So they're quite a a blessed 
family in that sense. But actually, um, there's a pain there, which we'll, we'll find out about in a minute. But we know that they were righteous before God. It says they were walking blamelessly. But that, that pain, that nagging pain, they had no children because Elizabeth was barren in verse 6. Just, just say that blameless doesn't mean that they were sinless. It means that they were walking and living according to God's provisions for, for, for forgiveness of their sins. And they were, if you like, devout in following uh, their, their God. Many would have seen that sort of piety, that blamelessness, as deserving of children in that time. So there was that obvious pain of, here we are serving God, and yet we'd love a family, but God has prevented that from happening. Elizabeth says that in verse 25, or uh, as a source of reproach. And it's a big problem, because now they were old too, and unable to have children. So for this guy, Zechariah, what do we see him doing in Luke chapter 1, this priest? We see him doing all of the things that he's supposed to be doing, don't we? He's doing everything that he should. Verse 9, uh, verse 8 and 9. Um, verse 9 tells us that his turn came as a priest to offer incense at the temple of the Lord. And that's uh, an event that could take place only perhaps once in the lifetime of a priest. So perhaps this particular day was probably the biggest and the most important day of his life of service as a priest. And it is quite an extraordinary day, isn't it, for him? He meets an angel. We have the normal angel response of fear. But the angel again puts him at rest and passes on a wonderful message concerning a son which will be born to him and Elizabeth. What do we find in verse 18? We find an unbelieving Zechariah, don't we? It's hard to judge, isn't it? But he's there in the temple, the most important place, and on the most important day of his life as a priest, and an angel meets with him, and you would think he would expect that sort of thing to happen. But it didn't. It did happen. He shouldn't have reacted in that way. He's there fulfilling his priestly duty according to the law and perhaps he's no longer expecting a real encounter with God, with the God that he's worshipping, the God that he's serving on behalf of the people. I mean, perhaps he's just going through the motions there. But it's a very wonderful thing, isn't it, that the angel blesses this priest by answering his prayer and confirming that this elderly, couple will in fact have a son and not just any son either so what of the temple and of Zechariah's duties that are being performed there are they just like a continuing pattern for a people who are going through the motions however faithfully they might be doing it or is God doing something else in this passage Is he explaining something else? Well, the account of Zechariah is a very 
interesting read and quite comical in, in some places, but that is the priest that we're directed to look at here. So we've had the king, we've had the priest, and next I want us to think about a martyr. A martyr. What is a martyr? So someone who dies for their faith. Who are we talking about? Well, we read about him in verse 13 onwards, or he starts to be referred to. Let's read this. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the, dis- and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Paul, uh, if he was well enough, was going to be speaking about Samson from the book of Judges. A lot of similarities there uh, with the, uh, the story of Samson in Judges, I think, 12 or 13. Um, you can look at that later. But also, it's interesting, isn't it, the level of similarity that there is between the foretelling of the birth of John and that of Jesus, as the angel speaks to Mary. Because of that, we have to take this guy, John, as being a very important person in the Christmas story, don't we? But what is it that he's going to be called to do? Well, ultimately, the verses point to the fact that he will be preparing the way for someone, preparing the way for Jesus. In fact, his entire life will be about preparing the way for someone else. And actually, John elsewhere is described by Jesus himself as the greatest person who ever lived without equal as far as humans are concerned. But what was John's ministry? What was John speaking about? What was he saying? Well, his message was to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we know that he would take the title John the Baptist, and that's what he would be known as. But ultimately, John loses his life. He loses his life at the hands of another of the Herods. Not the Herod mentioned in the, uh, the beginning of the reading, but another one. Same family. And he becomes a martyr. Someone who died because of his faith. And so it seems that perhaps the greatest human being, a blessing as he was, still succumbs to the fate that awaits us all that of death. If that's the fate that awaits the greatest person, what hope can there be for a world of lesser people like us? So what's the connection between these these three? And it is there in the Christmas story, and we're just going to try and tie it together now. When we, when we look at Matthew's account of the... Um, Christmas story or the elements of it that feed into the Christmas story. If we read in Matthew chapter 2, 11 and 12, we 
we meet the wise men, the magi, people from the east. People who travelled from a long way to find a ruler. And they found someone that they weren't expecting. You know, we know the story. They went off to Herod. He's the king in the palace. Let's ask him. And he didn't know, or he did know. Um, And the star leads the wise men onto this house in Bethlehem, these humble circumstances. And what happens in verse 11 and 12 of Matthew chapter 2? And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. In Jesus, we have a king, but he's a different king from King David. The wise men have just come from a palace, haven't they? They've just been before a king. The king that they present the gold to is a different king to the one that sits in a palace ruling over the people of the local area. This king was in a simple house, in a simple town, as part of a simple family, and yet he is deemed worthy of the praise and the adoration of these rich and important men who've travelled a long, long way to find him. They didn't get the gold out for Herod. They got the gold out for this baby or this young child, Jesus. There's no questions in the story, are there, about the unkinglike circumstances that they arrive into. But those gifts pick up on what I've been saying. They pick up on what we've been looking at this morning. Gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, the one who stands between the people and God. Myrrh for a martyr, someone who will ultimately die at the hands of those who are opposed to him. So these things point us directly to Jesus. The details from Luke chapter 1 are building this picture of who this baby is, who this child is. And how do they come together in Jesus? Well, Jesus is the king who reigns on the throne of his Father David, we sing it once in Royal David's city, we sing a little town of Bethlehem. That's where David was. But Jesus reigns on the throne that the David's throne was pointing towards, a greater throne than David's. It's in Jesus that that promise to David is fulfilled. The throne isn't in Jerusalem, it's not in Bethlehem. The throne is in the kingdom of heaven and Jesus is sitting on it right now. It's secure. It's like Jamie's gift that he explained this morning. It's beyond the reach of any decay or theft or going out of interest. It's there. Jesus is reigning today. And it's a kingdom which can never be destroyed, can never be defeated or conquered But Jesus is also the priest. He atoned once at the altar, as it were, forever. The book of Hebrews, later in in the Bible, 
develops a lot of the detail that we have in chapters 8 to 10. But for us here today, this morning, we don't just go through the motions, do we? Day after day, offering the same sacrifices, we don't have to do that. They can never take away sins. That's what it says in Hebrews. That is the Bible's view of all of those Old Testament sacrifices. What were they doing? They were pointing to one sacrifice that would do the job. Those old sacrifices were not fit for purpose, although they explained what was needed. But Jesus is the great high priest. What's different about his priesthood? Well, it is that one sacrifice. The price has been paid to take away our sin, to make things right with God, to justify us in God's sight. Once this priest had offered himself, no further offering was needed and he paid with his life. Jesus is the king who reigns on the throne of his father David forever. Jesus is the great high priest who atoned for sin once for all time. And Jesus is the martyr, as it were, who lays down his life to defeat death forever. We can't and we mustn't divorce the Christmas story from the reality of Easter. If we do, we will lose the impact of both of those parts of our calendar, if you like. They're part of the same story of good news, of salvation. We've seen, haven't we, that the greatest man, John, laid down his life. In that way, he was also preparing the way for Jesus, wasn't he? But Jesus laid down his perfect life, preparing the way for us to follow him. And what is it that we what is it that we obtain when we trust in Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection? We become part of that kingdom. We become part of Jesus' perfect kingdom. That kingdom that cannot be defeated. And why is that such a wonderful hope to us? Because eternal life is something that defeats their biggest enemy in our lives, doesn't it? What is it that we fear as a world? What is it that we fear as people? We fear the effects of sin which are manifest in death, don't we? And that is taken away in Jesus. And the question has to be, why would God do that for me? Why is it that this baby has turned up in Bethlehem and come for someone like me? Well, he has. That's what he's done as a king, to rule and bring in a perfect kingdom, as a priest to stand between us and God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And he did it by giving his life for people like us. That is the Christmas story, but it's the story of the Bible. 
through the lens of the events of Christmas, isn't it? And it is a wonderful message of hope, of salvation, for a world living in fear, for a world that so needs to hear the good news of Jesus. Is he your king? Is he your priest? Has he died for you? Do you know him as your saviour?